Good morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. My name is Greg Paris. If you've joined us online today, welcome to you. Thrilled to have you with us. We are in chapter 11. How many of you are read up through chapter 11? Come on, look at this. You guys are doing great. Fantastic. And you're with us, and uh, we, we appreciate that. We're going to talk about young David in just a moment, and we'll be right in the chronological events, the, the timeline of the greatest story ever told. And I know you've been enjoying it. Appreciate Zach Coffin's presentations the last couple of weeks. That was helpful, and we appreciate his good service and ministry to us. Just another word about Easter next week. Uh, some of you who came in a little bit later today discovered that finding a seat in here is becoming a little more difficult. Next week, we're in trouble at this service. And so here's, here's what I would really encourage you to do. If, you, if you're going to grab one of these invitation pieces on the seats and hand it to someone that you want to invite to Easter next week, then you come at 10 o'clock. The rest of you who are just coming by yourselves, come at 8.30 or 11.30. Seriously. <laughs> that, that will help because this room is going to get full at 10 o'clock. This is our largest service, as you can imagine. So thanks for helping us out with that. If you choose not to, we'll put you in charge of the ushering next week. You won't like that. Traffic control out in the parking lot. So here we are at chapter 11 in King David. Let me just, let me just remind you where we are. We have, we have identified God's overall plan, his vision for the world, which is to live in intimate community with you and me, with all of us forever. That's his plan. We learned this from the original story of the Garden of Eden. It's paradise. Adam and Eve rejected God's plan, sin. So we saw the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. And now we move into the story of the nation of Israel. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, preserving the people of God in Egypt. Then Moses, the great deliverer. Did you see the movie last night? ABC, the Ten Commandments. Did you watch it? How many of you still didn't watch the whole thing? Anybody? It's not as popular as it used to be. I see that hand. There's one at least. And so here's, here's, here's the story of Moses. And he leads them out of Egypt and into the desert of Sinai for 40 years. Then Joshua emerges as this great captain of the armies and they, they inherit the land. It's a military campaign for 40 years. Uh, modern day Israel, the land of Canaan. And then after Joshua comes the period of the judges. We've rehearsed those 400 years of tr different tribes and a, and a consortium of tribes and led by these judges, 12 in, in number, 11 men, one woman. Deborah was her name. We have Gideon and Samson and other men like that who were judges. Samuel becomes the last judge of Israel. And we're, we're still in the lifetime of Samuel now. And it, it begins the period of the kings. The first king was King Saul. And then young David emerges, whose story we're going to re rehearse today. And what we will do in this context is identify the relationships that David had in his life and how we might learn from those. Uh, let me just remind you that, that David came about 1,000 years now before Christ. So this is 3,000 years ago. David was not a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian at that point. 
He was only five generations removed from the exodus from Egypt under Moses. He was only four generations from the collapse of the walls of Jericho. He's only four uh, times removed. His great, 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 great grandmother was Rahab, the, the, the prostitute in Jericho. His great grandmother was Ruth. Zach Coffin rehearsed that part of the story where Ruth, this Gentile Moabite woman, returns back to Bethlehem with Naomi. Under those circumstances, his, her mother-in-law, where she meets this farmer guy named Boaz who becomes a kinsman redeemer whom we identify with Christ as well as our redeemer. And, and Boaz and Ruth have a baby. His name is Obed. Obed has a baby named Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of David. And so here we are, and that's the context. This, this coming of Ruth back to Bethlehem, though, his great-great-grandmother, the coming to Bethlehem is what places David now in Bethlehem. And this is the first time in the Bible that we hear of a place, a village called Bethlehem. And we know that there are three important events that, have, that happen in Bethlehem. Now, the first is the coming of Ruth, which we've described. The second is the birth of David. And then all of you know the answer to this question. There was another famous guy born in Bethlehem, and his name was Jesus. And so we identify Bethlehem. There's no city of Jerusalem at this time. Uh, Bethlehem is about 10 miles from Jebus, which was the name of that area, which is now Jerusalem. The Jebusites owned it. And David will later found Jerusalem and make it the capital city later in his monarchy. So David was a part of a primitive agrarian society. Israel, as we came to know it, didn't exist in David's day again. There was no monarchy at the time, no government, no, no uh, bylaws or that sort of thing, just a consortium of tribes led by these tribal elders. As I mentioned, the last of the judges now is Samuel. Samuel serves as not only a judge, but he's also a priest and a prophet. And his prophetic office comes into play as God speaks to Samuel. Remember, Samuel is this guy, once God puts his hand on him, the Bible says that not a word of his fell to the ground his whole life. So here's a, God who's, a guy who speaks for God. And so Samuel now is the one who uh, identifies Saul as the first king. And Saul was a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. His capital was at Gabeah. He instituted an informal draft, and this kind of congregated these tribes because he would select all the able young men to go out to war and be part of the army. And so this consolidated the nation a bit under Saul. And Saul's a person of great internal conflict. He's emotionally unstable uh, as he grows older. Uh, he has many uh, weaknesses, negative strongholds, if you will, in his life, which he never resolves. He's not an evil person. He just loses his way. And as a result of that, Samuel meets with Saul at a place called Gilgal and announces that God's anointing has left him. Now, friends, that's a bad day. God's withdrawn his hand from you. And Samuel then goes to Bethlehem to meet with Jesse who has eight sons. God speaks to Samuel. The next king is in the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. So Samuel goes there. He meets with Jesse. Do you have any boys? Yeah, I have eight sons. Let me see them. Beginning with the eldest, they work their way through. They see the first seven. Samuel says, do you have any more? Jesse said, well, I have one more. He's the runt. 
He's out tending the sheep. He's just a squirt. And Samuel says, let me see him. Okay, we'll send for him. Sit down. Let's have some lunch. Samuel says, I won't sit down until I lay, lay, lay eyes on the youngest. And so David finally comes in. You can, you know, his hair's out of place. And you know, he's maybe 10 years old, eight, nine, 10 years old, something like that. And he's got a booger hanging out of his nose. <clears throat> and as soon as he walks in and Samuel lays eyes on him, he says, he's the one. He's the next king. And he takes the anointing oil and pours it all over this kid's head. Just drips down on him. David's standing there. Can you see him looking at his dad, Jesse, saying, what is happening, dad? What does this mean? The last phrase of that text, it's in the story, if you read it this week in chapter 11, here's the last phrase, and it says, and from that day forward, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And by the way, friends, that's exactly what you want to have happen in your life. You want the Spirit of God to come powerfully on you. And you say, well, he was special. That's why he got special attention. I know, but the Bible also reports that in the last days, God would pour out of his Spirit on all flesh. That means you and I in this season of history are all candidates to be powerfully come upon by the Holy Spirit that the Spirit of God would rest heavily upon us, that his presence, his peace, his power, the special gifts and graces that come through a Spirit-filled life are available to every one of us. Praise God. Every day we should pray, God, come heavily upon me. Powerfully touch my life, Holy Spirit. Amen. You're not as excited about that as you should be. So Saul is still on the throne, but David, he's just a boy, so he's a king in waiting. Now, each of these uh, points I want to make today, I want to just give you a little nugget of truth. And somewhere along this sermon this morning, and it's not, it's not long, you saw we cleared out early at 8.30, so it's all good. I'll be done soon. But there's something for you. So if this first one doesn't get you, one of them will, okay? There's something for everybody. Here's the first thing. I'll put it on the screen. God will do things in your life that in the moment will resonate with you. You will feel it and know it's from God. You'll have an experience like that. God has made contact with you, but it could take years for the fulfillment of the implication of that contact. Now, with that being said, here's the, here's the lesson. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. Promotion comes from the Lord. I speak from experience on this. I, I, I came to faith when I was 19, uh, 16 years old. And when I was 19 years old, this is when I began to sense a call to do what I'm doing. And I was ready to go. You know, I just felt like I'm full grown. I'm ready. I'm 19. But God said, no, no, not yet. There's still preparation. So I had to, I had to wait. I went through college and then three and a half years of grad school. And so there's this waiting, you know, almost like a decade that I wait before God finally puts me in a position where I can do what I sense he wants me to do. And so especially the younger of you within the sound of my voice today, be patient. God has his hand on your life. He has a purpose and plan for you. Be patient. Wait for the promotion of God in your life. Don't force it. Don't rush it. Don't insist on a timeline that's not in keeping with God's best plan. There you go. So all of us have been influenced in our lives by relationships. If I ask you today, Who's the most positive influence in your life? 
you would, you would start reminiscing about maybe a parent or a coach or a teacher or a pastor or a youth pastor or something like that, and you would, you would say, that person changed my life. Or if I ask just the opposite, what, name someone who you know, tripped you up and held you back, and you could maybe list some names like that. All of us, my point is, has been influenced. We've all been shaped. We are who we are because of the relationships that we've had in our lives. Let's rehearse these four relationships in David's young life and see what we can learn. Here's the first one. It's with King Saul. The whole first section of David's life is about conflict with King Saul. Saul became immediately jealous. I mean, you can imagine Samuel comes to Saul and says, the anointing's left you, pal. There's a new king in waiting. And Saul deduces he knows who it is. He, he, he realizes it's this young David. And so Saul gets paranoid. He gets jealous. He gets vindictive. He gets murderous. And for years, he tries to kill David. And it's a, it's a, a sordid tale. And while Saul is trying to kill David, David is a man, as he grows into his, through adolescence and adulthood, is a man evidenced by the virtue of loyalty in his life. These two loyalties, and by the way, loyalty is one of the great Christian virtues. It's in keeping with, with patience and, and modesty and frugality and integrity. These, these are all Christian virtues, and loyalty is right there among the great virtues. Let me put this on the screen for you. David demonstrated loyalty to the people of God and loyalty to the God of the people. There was an occasion when King Saul, who had 3,000 warriors with him trying to chase down David, and he had this little band of men, and David and his men are hidden in, deep in this cave, and Saul goes into that cave by himself to relieve himself, and David has him. He could kill him if he wants to. But rather than killing Saul, David just cut the corner of his robe to demonstrate to him later, look, I had you. God gave, him, gave you into my hands, but, I, but I, I didn't kill you. Here's evidence. I was right there. In 1 Samuel 26, David goes through this whole speech with Saul, conse uh, consequentially from this, and he said, who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And so David has this sense of loyalty to God and to the people of God. He's not going to break rank and, and broach the protocol and the boundaries and the, and the relational expectations that God has put in place. Years ago at Asbury Theological Seminary, I was there for a board meeting, and I met the, the student body president, his name was Ryan Barnett, and Ryan was very impressive, impressive young leader, and I heard him preach in a chapel, and then a few days later, uh, I had dinner um, where he attended, and I had those three days after Ryan had made this preaching in the chapel, and I offered him a job. I said, listen, I know you're a senior. As soon as you graduate, come back to Muncie with me. And he, he smiled and he said, well, I, I already have arrangements. He said, I'm, I'm planning to move to San Antonio. And I said, no, no, you, you're coming to Muncie. He said, I think God's calling me rather to San Antonio. Whatever. <laughs> so he joined a staff on a larger church down there, and his senior pastor allowed him to start a second service down in the fellowship hall, you know, you can, you can start a service down there in the fellowship hall and, and let people sit on fold, metal folding chairs and see how it goes. Well, within 15 months, the people, the number of people attending Ryan's service down in the fellowship hall on, 
on metal folding chairs was outpacing the number of people coming to the senior pastor service up in this nice sanctuary. And jealousy ensued, and that relationship didn't last. And yet Ryan maintained his integrity and his loyalty and a good heart. So that was his relationship with Saul. Here's the second relationship. It was with a guy named Goliath. Anyone ever heard of David and Goliath? Yeah. 1 Samuel 17. Now, David is no longer a boy at this time. He's now an adolescent. He's slightly too young to serve in the army. His older brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, Shammah, were all there. But David is home tending the sheep. And so their father, Jesse, tells David, pack up some cheese and some bread and these gifts and take these cheese sandwiches to your brother's there with the army and give these presents to the officials there. And so he's about 15. David's 15 years old. He's still skinny and developing. And so he arrives with the cheese sandwiches and he gives witness to this ancient practice of warfare. The army on one side of a valley would stand opposite the army on the other side and they would send out a champion or a spokesperson And they would do this every day, and one would come out and taunt the other, and then another guy would be sent out, and they'd taunt the other guys. And it was just this ritual uh, that developed over the years because it was was a lot easier, frankly, than than swinging swords at each other. So they would just hurl insults at each other. And David shows up just in time to hear Goliath, this guy who's literally nine feet tall. He's nine feet tall. He's a menace. And he's, you know, fully decked out in armor and he's, you know, he's got this shield and this sword and this spear and it's, it's intimidating. It's, it's, it's very, very disconcerting. And he comes out there and starts taunting the Israelites and he's been doing it for 40 days. And David there and his youthful naivety, his, his idealism, he says uh, to guys within earshot, he said, hey, who's going to go out and kill this guy? I mean, this is going to be great. Someone's got to shut him up. He's excited about it. Uh, Who's going? Who's going to take care of this guy? And the first thing he hears is, why don't you shut up? Why don't you mind your own business? He he probably looks at, are you going? He said, I would. My my foot's killing me. I've got a bad foot. (laughs) So everyone's got an excuse because this giant is a menace. And his brothers are livid with him. What are you even here? uh, What are you doing? You're up to no good again. You're always sticking your nose in. You know, they, they resent him. He's young and feels like he's spoiled. David then asked another question. He said, well, if I kill him, what will I get? Is there a reward for killing this guy? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, there is. You'll get lots of money. You get a position in the army. You get to marry the king's daughter, immediately giving you status in the kingdom. And you and your family won't have to pay taxes for the rest of your life. That may be enough right there. (laughs) And, of course, David's answer when everyone else refuses, you know, including Saul, the king, Everyone refuses to go out and fight this giant. And so David, in his naivete, his idealism, and in the purity of his heart, it's a brilliant 
question in the context, this is what David simply asked. He says, is there not a cause? Can you, can you feel the conviction penetrating everyone in the Israeli army? When a 15-year-old kid says, is there not a cause? Don't you admire that? It may be youthful idealism. It may be irrational, but it's, it's actually true. Isn't it true, friends, that there, there are some things in life worth living for and actually some things in life worth dying for? Is there not a cause? I wonder in this space, in this room, in this moment, that we could come up with one or two causes that are worth everything. I can speak for me and my house when I say following Jesus, making him known, making him more famous, more followed in our immediate associations and indeed to the ends of the earth. That's a cause. Here's my nugget for you. Put it on the screen. The person who simply does what is right with an innocent heart will look manipulative, scheming, and self-centered to those who are cynical. Come on, we're all going to do it. Everybody's doing it. Let's go. No, I don't think so. Your business partner says, I know it, it's, a, it's slightly unethical, but, you know, everybody else is doing it, so let's practice this in our business. No. It's, it's wrong. I won't do it. You're in a group of teenagers with your friends in a car. Okay, let's go do such and such. And you say, no, I'm not going to engage in that. Just let me out of the car. I'll walk home. What do all of, the, all of these people who have this kind of position and response to the social pressure, what kind of response do they always get from their peers and their cronies? You think you're self-righteous, don't you? You think you're all that. You think you're better than everybody else. You're one of those, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? So judgmental, narrow-minded. You think you're superior to everyone else. Everyone in the Hebrew army thought, look, that Goliath is too big to beat. David's standing there thinking, this guy's too big to miss. I'm going. David's opposition from Saul will define the next season of his life. But David's opposition from Goliath will change his destiny. Because suddenly, when David kills Goliath, this changes his whole status in the whole, in the whole country. I mean, this is Ryan Seacrest standing next to young David saying, and now meet your next Hebrew idol. Because everybody knows who he is. Becomes very famous. You know, there's a proverb that's often quoted without real wisdom. I've said it many times, perhaps you have as well. It goes like this. There are two sides to every story. Have you said it? I've said it. For example, a woman is in an emergency room and she's all battered and bloodied and bruised and two physicians caring for her, conversing about her case. And one physician says to the other, her husband should go to jail for this. To which the other physician says, well, now, wait a minute. 
there are two sides to every story. Listen to me carefully. This is going to be hard for some of you to hear. There are not two sides to every story. This is a harsh reality for those of you, especially the most young among us who've been raised in a postmodern, post-Christian, relativistic world. It's hard to hear what I'm about to say. In fact, most people won't say it, but you're looking at a guy who isn't afraid to say things that are true. In some situations, there is someone who is right, who is correct, who is aligned with truth, and there is someone who is wrong. In some situations, in fact, I would say often, there is a right and there is a wrong. Now, we live in this postmodern, post-Christian world, and our values and our reasoning about such things are influenced in ways that we're not even aware of. We're all under the influence of a culture that now has distorted right from wrong. And it's virtually impossible to discern the difference sometimes. One such influence is that the suggestion is made that we all struggle, and all struggle is relative. We're led to believe all human conflict is complex, and therefore there are no absolutes that we live in a moral mosaic where everyone's individual truth is legitimate. I have my truth, you have your truth, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. And everybody's truth is valid. But let me just say this. Your truth is only valid if it aligns with the truth. Your truth may or may not have validity depending on how it lines up with the truth. You're looking at a person who believes there is such things as absolute truth. So there are not two sides to every story. There are some things that are right and they are true. And there are some things that are wrong and damaging. There are some things that are right and true every time. True and right today True and right yesterday, true and right tomorrow, true and right. And there are some things that are wrong. wrong. They were wrong yesterday, damaging yesterday. They're wrong today, damaging today. They'll be wrong and damaging tomorrow. The Bible actually predicts that one day there's going to be an event called what the Bible describes as the great white throne judgment. This is where almighty God is going to sit in judgment on all of humanity. The same God who is described as the one who dwells in light, the God who is a consuming fire, and apparently as a result of that can differentiate between what's right and good and wrong and damaging. And I assure you, if you, if you step, step up in front of the white throne judgment of Almighty God and try to plead your case because your truth was different than his truth and your truth is as valid as his, it's not going to end up well. I'm not threatening anybody. Just heads up. Heads up. That's the phrase that I use throughout my youth in, a, in an athletic context. You hear someone say, heads up. You know what it means. Heads up. Heads up. 
In David's early relationship with Saul, he's a person of honor with character, integrity, loyalty. We've already rehearsed some of that. Saul is an egomaniacal person, deceitful, manipulative, violent, murderous, maybe even demonized. David is a respectable young person who's trying to do the right thing. My point is there are not two sides to every story. There's a right side often, and there's a wrong side. You talk about cutting against the grain. I just dulled my blade (laughs) against the grain right there. David is 15 or 16 years old. He's made the captain in an army. He has two things going for him. He has a natural gift of leadership. The age-old question, are leaders made or are they born? The answer is yes. Uh, Both are true. And in his case, he's been born a leader. This boy's got all the wiring to lead. And then on top of that, the more dangerous the missions he's given as a captain in the army, the more he succeeds. You can see Saul now, he wants him dead anyway. He's jealous of him. And so he puts David in these impossible situations where he just figures David will be killed. And yet he succeeds every time and exceeds expectations. He overachieves. Remember the day he was anointed by Samuel that the spirit of God came powerfully upon him. So this guy's got an advantage. His heart is pure and God is on him. So he succeeds everywhere he turns, everything he puts his hands on. So Saul intentionally tries to kill him, and yet David maintains humility and grace. Here's another nugget. Put it on the screen. When somebody hates you unreasonably, they're jealous, envious, hateful, the better you act, the more they will hate you. Sorry about that. I wish I could say, if you'll just do the right thing, it will turn the hearts of your enemies. No. You're looking at someone with experience. No. The reason is because jealousy, envy, hatred, these are all emotion-driven things. They, They have no logical boundaries. There's no rationality to it. It's something people feel. I feel angry. I feel jealous. So the better you act, the worse it will be. Now we move to this third relationship, and it's with a woman named Michal. Saul gives David permission to marry his youngest daughter. Her name is Michal. And Saul's motive for doing it, not only because he promised to do such for anyone who defeats this Goliath, but it's because he knows now he'll have a natural spy in the house of David, his own daughter. So Michal loves David, doesn't suspect of Saul's deceit. Therefore, she'll be unguarded about her husband when her father, Saul, tries to get dirt on David. So this is Saul's attempt to put a spy in David's house by allowing his daughter to marry him. And from that moment on, the marriage becomes corrupted because of the divided loyalty in McCall's heart. Later, it destroys the marriage. McCall becomes a terrible pawn in her father's hands, and it's not really her fault. I mean, the marriage was arranged, And Michal, though, loved David and wanted to make a go of it, but because of Saul's treachery, it all soiled and soured. But in the end, what Michal does is she chooses loyalty to her father over loyalty to her husband. Here's the nugget. Women, especially young women, this one's for you. 
you will never become a wife unless you stop becoming a daughter. You'll never become a queen if you cannot stop being a princess. Let me nuance it a little better. At some point, you have to stop being your daddy's little girl and you have to start being your husband's wife. I'm talking to someone right now. To find success in your marriage, the central focus of male loyalty has to shift from your daddy to your husband. My wife Beth's dad, her daddy is still alive. He's 95 years old. Let me tell you a little bit about the story. When Beth was nine years old, she had two older siblings, an older sister and brother. Her parents, Beth was nine, her parents were 38. Her mother developed cancer and she died at the age of 38, leaving these three kids, the youngest of which was nine years old, without a mother, without a wife. Beth's dad, her father, was 38 years old himself at the time. And he made a decision, maybe because of promises he made to his dying wife or otherwise, we're not sure, but he chose not to remarry for 10 years, making rather his priority the rearing of his three children. 38 years old. You say, well, yeah, well, maybe he wasn't a good prospect for marriage. No. Without hyperbole, Beth's dad was the nicest guy in town. You could argue he was the most handsome guy in town. (laughs) He was the most winsome guy in town. I mean, he's all polished up. He comes under the category of eligible bachelor. Did you hear me say he waited 10 years? And it's not because he didn't have opportunity, that there weren't prospects. He chose to wait to make sure that girl was okay. So today, now see, that girl down there, my wife, she loves her daddy. Ooh. If, if her daddy called her right now and just said, I need your help, she would get up and she would be going out the room. And I, and I would be doing what I'm doing. I'd say, hey, hey, where are you going? She said, my daddy needs me. I said, but what about lunch? She'd go, <laughs> What about me? Psst. Now you're saying, isn't that the opposite of what you're just preaching? No, no. Well, this is an example of the possibility. This is how you should do it. You can still love your daddy. You just have to shift your loyalty. The guy who's in first place has to be your husband. Because if you don't do it, it will damage your marriage. And if you don't do it, your husband will know. At the end of David and McCall's lives, McCall is never referred to as David's wife. When you keep reading through the scripture, through the story, you'll never find the Bible referring to her as David's wife. She is only referred to as Saul's daughter. 
that interesting? Their lives end with complete estrangement, with frozen hatred and bitterness. In the end, she is bitter, she is barren, she never has a baby. That's a horrible curse back in the day. And she hates her father and she despises her husband. Everybody loses because of misplaced loyalty. Here's the last relationship, and it's with the son of King Saul. His name is Jonathan and David's relationship with him. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, says that the greatest love of all is not romantic love because it's limited to the two parties. Listen to the, in, to the insight. They are infatuated with each other. The greatest love, C.S. Lewis concludes, is friendship, where two people link arms and move together for the common good. I think C.S. Lewis is on to something here. David and Jonathan qualify for this definition. Now, maybe not everyone experiences this, but there can be a friendship. I've experienced it. There can be a friendship that is established immediately and lasts a lifetime. As soon as you meet that person, you're connected to them, and it lasts your whole life. In our perverse times, for example, we see two men in this kind of loving friendship, and people immediately jump to the conclusion of homosexuality. In the biblical text, and there are people who have jumped to that conclusion, especially those who, who are advocating for homosexual lifestyle, they point to David and Jonathan as an example of guys who were romantically involved. There is absolutely nothing whatsoever in the biblical text that would indicate any such thing. Nothing. Now, I will confess quickly that David had his problems with sin, and that will be borne out in a couple of weeks. He had his problems with sin, but boys was not one of them. If McCall, Saul's daughter, David's wife, is the tragic person in this story, the person of greatest nobility is Jonathan, Saul's son. Jonathan is one of the most admirable people in all of the scripture. There's a moment when, when David and Jonathan are together, and Jonathan is the son of the king. And you could argue, he could have argued, look, I'm the rightful heir to the throne. I'm the son of the king. But there's an occasion where Jonathan is standing before David, and he takes off his bow and his belt and, and his sword, and he lays it before David. And he's symbolically saying to David, Listen, I understand who the, who's going to be the next king. I may be the rightful heir because of the lineage of my father, but you are the one God has chosen, and I recognize it fully, and I am not going to use any selfish ambition on my part in order to stand between you and God's best design for your, your life and the, and the country. Everyone say noble. Someone say friendship. Here's your nugget. I'll put it on the screen. Jonathan is a good and loyal friend who is not confused by divided loyalties or selfish ambition. And that loyalty doesn't spare Jonathan's life. He dies at the hand of the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, and he never becomes king. I'm sorry we live in such a perverse age when it becomes very difficult to say to another person, with a pure heart, I love you. You are my friend.
Do you have a friend like that? I love you. You are my friend. My observation is if you attempt to have many close friends in life, then in order to keep many friends, from time to time you may be forced to compromise important standards or values in your life. You'll probably be compromised as a person. If, on the other hand, you come to old age and you have one great enduring friendship, then you're probably to the good. Something to think about. In talking about these things over the years, I've had people, including my own sons, say to me, I'd like to have a friend like that. And my advice to them is the same I'd give to you. Be the friend you'd like to have. And God will probably allow you to cultivate one. Be that friend. David and Jonathan never bend to the political and family issues that pressurize their day. They remain fully themselves without compromise all the way to the end of their days. There was a geopolitical spiritual storm literally breaking over their heads. That storm killed Jonathan. The storm destroyed McCall, but it never destroyed Jonathan and David's love for each other. And if I were to speculate about right now, I suspect they're together right now. I anticipate when I meet King David someday, I'll meet Jonathan at the same time. Well, I know that as you think about these relationships, it has connection to your own life and relationships, and I hope it's meaningful to you. Let's pause and pray. Lord, oh God, today teach us patience. Teach us to wait on you. Promotion comes from the Lord. Teach us to exhibit, possess and exhibit the virtue of loyalty. Loyal to you. Loyal to your people. Loyal to our husbands. Loyal to our wives. Help us to be good friends without divided loyalties, selfish ambition. And finally, Lord, Holy Spirit, come upon us powerfully. Lord, let the same spirit that rested on young David rest on us. You've promised to pour out your spirit upon all flesh, sons and daughters. Fill us all, O oh God. Rest heavily upon us by your spirit, we pray, so that we too might have pure hearts, clean hands, useful in your service, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. would you stand with us?